Wellness is about so much more than just one thing. And that is why I am so excited about today's podcast episode with Dr. Alona Polde and Dr. Matthew Lederman. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together. What is our need with our work? For some people, it is meaning and purpose, but work is a strategy to meet the need for meaning and purpose. We can meet needs for meaning and purpose in spirituality. We can connect to volunteer work. You know, there's a lot of different ways to meet that meaning and purpose. Is it a need for financial security? And when we can tap into these needs, there's another shift that happens, and it's a shift from I have to do this to I'm choosing to do this. I'm choosing this line of work that maybe isn't meeting my need for meaning and purpose at the moment, but it is really meeting my need for financial security, and that matters to me at this moment. So I'm gonna continue choosing this path. And there's an empowerment and a sense of safety versus a danger or a mobilization when we connect to that. Hello, hello from Bend, Oregon. I just finished the High Cascades 100 mountain bike race, which I will get to in just a minute. And I just received a shipment of Prevenex, an emergency shipment, because I just ran out of the multivitamin. One of the most important things about my self-care routine is taking a multivitamin. In fact, that's why I trust Prevenex because they make a very high quality pharmaceutical grade multivitamin. And it's not only the studies that show that they are using the best sourced and highest quality ingredients, but I can feel the difference every day. And that is why I was excited that Prevenex sent me an emergency shipment whenever I ran out. A lot of times people think self-care routines have to be very complicated and have all of these steps and be very fancy, but self-care can be as simple as taking a multivitamin to cover all your bases and make sure that you are creating the best health possible for yourself. The supplement industry is the wild west out there, and I trust Prevenex because the founder, David Block, who has also been a podcast guest, used to be a research analyst for the supplement industry. And what he saw out there frightened him so much that he decided to start his own company so that when people took multivitamins and other supplements, they knew that they could trust what they were taking and get the highest quality experience out there. Not only do I trust my own health to Prevenex, but I also trust my children's. And my son takes the Supervites multivitamin by Prevenex, and he asks for it every single day. Their Give Health, Get Health program, because one in four children around the world are stunted because of chronic malnutrition. Through their partnership with the Catholic Medical Mission Board, they give one bottle of the children's multivitamin, Supervites, to the most at-risk, in-need children around the world with each purchase you make. So if you want to take the highest quality supplements out there, multivitamins, probiotics, and more, check out Prevenex.com, P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com, and use the code SONIA15 off your first purchase, and know that you are also providing nutrition and hope to children around the world. Health is such a major part of my life, and I'm really excited to tell you about today's podcast guest. But I thought since I am still in Bend and just 48 hours past my last race... 
I would talk about it a little bit. And on paper, it looks really good. I finished fourth place at this very difficult 100-mile mountain bike race. And this race is personally meaningful to me because the race promoter, Mike Ripley, is a fantastic human being. And he does such a great job with his events. And he truly cares about the people in the race. I also have done many 100-mile mountain bike races around the world, so this is sort of my niche. But I have to admit that the last two times I've raced 100, which was yesterday or I guess two days ago, and last year I did this 100 as well, I haven't felt quite like myself in these 100-mile races. And that's been a very frustrating experience for me because I'm almost having to relearn how to race 100 because my nutrition strategy and my pacing strategy that I've used in the past haven't been working for me. And that is very interesting because I've been racing 100 milers since I think 2010. I'm not sure this year if it's because my training is different because I am trail running three days a week and I'm riding my bike three days a week, which means my cycling volume is not what it usually is, or if it's just that this altitude range is not an ideal altitude range for me, or if I'm just taking on too much, but it's been a hard go. And in fact, I've been struggling a little bit this summer to find a race form that I really want to connect with and that I feel really proud of. That doesn't mean that my results are not good. I have been placing well in these races, but doing hard things in racing to me isn't just about a result, whether I'm first place or 10th place or even last place. What I want to feel at the end of the race is that I got the most out of myself and that I rode to what my capability was. And while I did ride to my best uh, for that day, and I was proud of everything that I left out there. It was very disappointing to not be able to perform in a way that I know that I'm capable of. So it's an interesting conundrum whenever we think about racing and we think about our performance and we think about what our goals are. For myself, I always set process-oriented goals that have nothing to do with how I place or even necessarily how my legs feel that day. It's things like pacing properly off the start, which I had a very um, conservative pacing plan this year to let the front of the race go, which I usually don't do. And it took a lot of self-regulation and discipline to do that. And I was proud that I was able to execute that. The plan was that I would get faster as the race went on, but unfortunately, I just kept going backwards. My other plan was to ride the downhills a little bit more aggressively because There's different ways that you can come up with your race craft. And whenever I am in the lead in a race, I tend to be a little bit more conservative on the descents. But I knew that because of the heat and the altitude here, that I wouldn't be able to climb in a way that I normally do. So that meant that maybe I would be a little bit more rested and able to push the downhills and have a little bit less risk involved. So I did push the downhills a bit harder than I normally do. And I had tons of fun doing so. And I was so proud of the work that I've put in on my cornering and all of my descending over the years. And it really showed up on race day. I also was proud of some of the things I've been working on for my own mental skills. And those things are acceptance, acceptance of how things are. And acceptance is not resignation, but whenever things weren't going well and I realized that all I could do was just sort of ride the race and not have the extra gas to race the race, I was frustrated and I felt sad and I felt like, well, maybe I shouldn't be racing my bike anymore if I can't actually race. And I was in a negative downward spiral in my head until I realized I was resisting how I was feeling for the day and I was resisting how my race was playing out. And that was causing suffering. And the resistance of these challenging emotions and these challenging situations 
is what causes us the most suffering in our life. So I had a choice. I could choose to keep going down that rabbit hole, potentially beating myself up or just wishing things were different, or I could accept how things were for the day. And again, that didn't mean that that's a permanent performance, but that's how it was for the day. And once I was able to do that, I had a lot more fun and I stopped suffering from resisting these emotions. Another thing that I'm proud of is I was very present in the race. Once I stopped ruminating and thinking about all these things, I wasn't even looking at what time it was. I wasn't looking at what mile I was at. I was able to just be in the moment. And that didn't mean that I was stoked and happy and cheerful in the moment, but I was just there. And I was able to connect with the sound of my tires on the ground or the sound of the wind or the people around me or what things look like, because ultimately the present moment was all I had. And a mantra in my head was also one that comes from my friend, Travis Macy, who's a fellow podcaster. He's been on the show a few times, but he says, keep the faith. And what that meant to me was not giving up, not giving up on myself because I've done lots of hundreds and I've had moments like these where it's really hard and I've come out of them and ended up feeling better at the end of the race. So I kept the faith that things would come around. And even if they didn't come around, that meant that I just didn't give up on myself. And I kept trying and giving the best effort that I had And I had to be proud of that. And the last thing that I really practiced of these mental skills that I've been working on was curiosity. And you probably remember the Ted Lasso quote, use curiosity, not judgment. And that's probably not the exact quote. But you use a different part of your brain when you are being curious instead of judgmental. So I was being curious about myself, curious about what would happen next. And that really helped me whenever things were difficult and I felt really down on myself and on my performance. There's a few more things that I want to say about my race, and I'm telling you all these things not because I'm feeling sorry for myself or I'm making excuses for my result because I truly got the best out of myself on the day, (laughs) but I just want you to know what it's like whenever things aren't going well because on social media or wherever you might see a fourth place podium and think, well, that's fantastic, but and, and it is fantastic. However, whenever we are doing hard things or we're taking on challenges in our lives, There are going to be days or or maybe months even where we aren't feeling like we should be or like we feel like we should be. So what do you do in those moments and not give up? And how do you keep going and make the most and make meaning from those moments whenever things are difficult? So that's why I am sharing these things with you. A couple other points that I want to make is that just because somebody has a performance that they label as bad or not up to snuff, that doesn't mean that they had a bad day. So I was out there for almost nine hours and I wouldn't say that I had a bad day. I just was disappointed with how I was performing. I had a great day. I got to enjoy a lot of things that I came for for racing. I got to see beautiful views of Mount Bachelor. I got to be a part of the community, which is the most important thing and my favorite thing about racing. I got to do a presentation on Thursday before the race about mental fitness and teach people about topics that are very near and dear and super important to me and see them actually executed in the race. In fact, people came up to me after the race and said that they use some of the things that I taught in my talk. So a bad performance doesn't equate to a bad day. In order to do that, you have to look for all the ways that you can be objective about it and not make one negative thing take over the entire experience. And while racing is really hard, especially whenever you have two toddlers and you travel and do all those things. And in fact, we drove nine hours in one day and the drive itself took 11 hours with our kids down here. And I'm not saying that to brag or to say how amazing our kids are traveling, but I'm saying that it's possible to do things 
that may seem impossible. A lot of people would think nine hour drive with my kids going to race a 100 mile mountain bike race in the heat and the altitude and it was 96 degrees. So it was quite hot. I can't do that. And we put these limits on ourselves telling us that we can't do something and we can. It just means that you have to be a little bit flexible and you might have to shift your expectations and you might have to just be able to find meaning in places that you didn't realize that you were going to have to find meaning. And other times it goes amazingly well and both cases are worth it. And speaking of meaning, I wanted to let you know that I am putting on an event called the Women's Cycling Summit, August 14th through 17th in Breckenridge, Colorado. It is going to be saddled up next to the Breck Epic, an amazing six-day backcountry mountain bike stage race. I will also be racing the event. So that's going to be a pretty big week for me doing this six-day mountain bike race, which I did last year. And this will actually be my fourth time doing this race. And then in the afternoons, introducing speakers, being an MC, and being a speaker myself. We have incredible women coming to speak at this event from top female pros to entrepreneurs to people sharing their journey. And the whole point of this this summit is to help women turn intention into action. Because as I was just saying, we put all of these limits on ourselves and reasons why we can't do something. And I thought that by sharing many different experiences and spotlighting women who are doing cool things with their lives, we could inspire everybody else to maybe push a little bit harder to go after that thing that they always wanted to do, but told themselves they couldn't. In addition to these speakers, we will have some other opportunities for you like tech clinics from Shimano so you can learn how to work on your bike because that can be a big limiter for a lot of people to not want to go out and mountain bike because it is a technical sport. And speaking of technical, we also have the Venture Birds leading a skills clinic. We'll have group rides and a bunch of other fun stuff. So go to womencyclingsummit.com. Our primary mode of communication will be email and on our Facebook page, which is Women's Cycling Summit. I can't believe this is only a month away. There is so much more that I want to do in preparation for this event, but I am so excited about this and I wouldn't have been able to do it without Mike McCormick. He also was a podcast guest talking about the Breck Epic, but he has helped me turn my intention into action and create the Women's Cycling Summit. Okay, so if you're still here, I hope that you still are. I wanted to just tell you about my race and give you a quick recap. And now I'm going to tell you about today's amazing podcast guests. And something we talked a lot about is needs. How do you find time to connect with your needs? And how do you know what those are? I had the privilege of sitting down with visionary physicians, Dr. Alona Polde and Dr. Matthew Lederman. These brilliant minds are the driving force behind Forks Over Knives, a documentary that really touched me that I'll tell you about in a minute and authors of the new book, Make Life Wonderful. Back in 2012, the Forks Over Knives documentary had a profound impact on my life. It completely transformed my lifestyle, leading me to embrace a plant-based diet and a whole foods approach in 2013. So I've been whole foods plant-based for 10 years. What I discovered was that making this change had a ripple effect, inspiring me to make more positive changes in various aspects of my life. And it created a powerful momentum for myself and my well-being. And not only that, it took me four years to share with others how I was eating. And I was afraid to share that journey because I didn't want anybody else to feel judged or to think that they had to do it my way. But it was so powerful in how it was impacting me that I wanted to tell other people about it too. If you're interested in plant-based diets and how that impacts athletics and how you can follow other plant-based athletes and how they do it too, there is an amazing New York Times bestselling book out there called The Plant-Based Athlete by 
Robert Cheek and Matt Frazier. I'm actually featured in this book and I was super flattered that they put me in that book. We've also recorded a podcast about it. So if you want the ins and outs of being a plant-based athlete and hearing about athletes from all different disciplines of sport, that's a great book. So back to this amazing conversation that I had with Dr. Alona and Dr. Matthew, we delved into the nine pillars of health and wellness outlined in their book. We explored how focusing on these pillars can not only prevent, but also reverse chronic diseases. And that was the main impetus for me changing my diet, reversing and preventing chronic diseases. We discussed the importance of self-connection, understanding emotions, and effective communication as foundational elements for improving overall health. What I love about this is that wellness is not just about eating a plant-based diet, and I'm a huge advocate for that, but lifestyle medicine is about doing a lot of different things. It's about a multi-pronged approach, and it's not reductionist where just one thing is going to do it all for you. And we got to talk about that in today's podcast. And Dr. Alona and Dr. Matthew are both very passionate about eating plant-based, and I thought it was amazing that they wrote this book to show all of the different areas that are important to our health and well-being. In this episode, they shared invaluable insights, practical advice, and the motivation to truly understand our own health journeys. If you're curious about the transformative power of connecting with yourself and taking control of your health, then this enlightening episode is a must listen. Find out more about private physicians and coaching, plant-based recipes, connection workshops, free live streams, and more resources at We Heal. Please enjoy this episode with Dr. Alona and Dr. Matthew. Welcome to the show. Thanks hey. so much for having us. I was, so, I was so excited to read about this book because I saw both of you in Forks Over Knives in 2012, many years ago, which was a huge impact to my life and completely changed the way that I live my life. And just for the listeners, like I, I changed my diet to a plant-based diet, Whole Foods plant-based diet in 2013. And around that time, I started noticing that there was other things in my life that contributed to me feeling better, to my well-being. And making one change tended to create more changes. It created momentum for myself. And that's something that I think we're going to talk about today. Sounds great. So what was the impetus for writing this book? Yeah, I think Matt and I are very curious souls, <laughs> always looking for, and that's kind of what led us in the path from practicing just conventional medicine to nutrition, to nutrition and lifestyle. It's really a sense of how do we optimize our lives? How do we optimize our health? And I think that was the the big transition. It was kind of taking that from how do we optimize our health where we know, you know, sleep impacts it and activity and nutrition to really how do we optimize our lives? And, you know, we like to say in a world of infinite possibilities, why can't life be wonderful? It can. So how do we get to wonderful? And that led us to kind of look at these other pillars that we have now brought together. So I'm curious, there's nine pillars here. I've seen, you know, the pillars in lifestyle medicine. I've seen some pillars for brain health. I'm a, a student in the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology right now. And there's like a bunch of pillars for well-being. So like, where did these pillars specifically come from? Yeah, I think it was a merging of nutrition and lifestyle, which we already had a lot of passion around and what we like to call connection medicine. And why I like that term of connection medicine is because it really sends a different impact on the importance of connection and how remaining disconnected or remaining mobilized or in survival mode really impacts 
our physical, emotional, and mental well-being. Yeah, and I like that connection isn't just about connection with others. And certainly relationships are incredibly important to our well-being. But I like in this book, you emphasize a lot the connection that you have to yourself. If somebody is feeling disconnected with themselves, they're overwhelmed, they're, they have a lot going on in their life, they've maybe let themselves down time and time again, or maybe they don't even know where to start. Like, How do you begin to develop this relationship with yourself? Yeah, so the, there's two parts that we talk about. The first part is regulation. So before you can connect to yourself, you need to regulate the nervous system, which is essentially getting out of fight or flight mode and into this physiological state of safety. And when you're in this state of safety, your autonomic nervous system is sort of primed now to support connection. And that at that point, then you have to discern what's going on inside your heart. What are your feelings and needs? So we've, through trying to stay attached to our important relationships and staying connection with other people, we sort of learn to suppress our needs and read the room and sort of bend to the needs of the room and the, mo- the most important people around us and those people and how they defined success. So we were taught how to be good kids by our parents. We were taught how to be good students by our teachers. We were taught how to be good workers by our supervisors. But that's all outside of us. So we have this, we've been educated in a way that makes us look outside versus what we're trying to teach people is how to cultivate that in that skill to discern internally, find your intrinsic motivation. What are you feeling? What are you needing? That requires building a feelings and needs vocabulary, right? Which we talk about nonviolent communication as a framework to do that. And then how do I, once I become clear on what's going on inside of me, how do I share that in a way that it's not going to land like a lead weight, but it's actually going to increase connection and land as a gift to the other person? Cultivating those skills is the first step to making life wonderful. Yeah. And I know that, you know, a lot of us have thoughts and feelings and things like that, but it can be really hard for people to, number one, name an emotion that they're having. And then number two, link that to a need, like you said, from nonviolent communication, every every feeling has a need behind it. So how do people actually do that? So it's it's practice. And we can start off, you know, and st- when I started, I had three feelings, good, bad, and angry. And good and bad aren't really feelings, right? And angry is is some feeling, but it's mixed in with a lot of thought. So then I, just like any other language, I learned the feelings vocabulary, and we have those in the book, in the in Wellness to Wonderful has appendices with different amounts of feelings words, and to start learning. And if people aren't sure, there's four, you know, three of them rhyme, sad, glad, and mad, and then the, you know, and then scared. So if you just focus on those four feelings, you've now expanded for a lot of people, their feelings vocabulary significantly. And then there's different flavors within those four. But if you just start walking around saying, hey, how am I feeling right now? Am I feeling sad? Am I feeling glad? Am I feeling mad? Or am I feeling scared? Right? To me, that's a, that's the practice. We would play around with our kids when we're driving in the car. Anybody want to do a feelings check-in? We're watching TV. I might say, hey, how do you think that person's feeling? And they practice. And that so to me, that that's and then the needs, it's the same way. We all have needs are universal. We have universal human needs. So safety autonomy or choice, comfort, acceptance, love, right? Predictability. 
uh, all of those are needs. So you start to learn those needs words, and then you connect your feelings to your needs. So if I'm feeling anxious, maybe I have a need for safety and comfort that's not being met or security. Okay, so now I'm aware that I'm feeling anxious. I know what that feels like in my body. I have the need. And then I can choose to take action, either myself or ask request of someone else to support maybe meeting my need for security a little better. Similarly, if a need is not being met or is being met, I feel pleasant feelings. So I have a need for um, love and connection. And, you know, and I'm feeling so warm and tender inside when that need is being met. And now I can appreciate the person and celebrate them. I can say, hey, Alona, when you gave me that hug the other day, without me even doing anything, you just came up to me and gave me a hug and told me how much I make your life more wonderful. That felt really tender and warm inside. And that really meant a need for connection and love. So now they're clear what they did to contribute to our life to make it more wonderful. And they're going to be more clear on how to do it again if they want to. And they feel the impact of contributing to someone else's life. That's really important. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a language that we learn. You know, when we first learned it, we would, we printed out feelings and needs. And when we needed to take inventory of what was going on inside, we pulled out that sheet and what am I feeling? You know, so that sad, mad, glad and scared evolved into a whole lot of other feelings and then connecting to the other needs. You know, initially, like our daughters are nine and 11. And when they were first learning it, we would hear that's not meeting my need for consideration and respect everything connected to consideration and respect. Mm -hmm. And now over time, you know, they have expanded that vocabulary. So they're tapping into a great many more needs that are met or are not met. Something that's so interesting. I have a a one and a three-year-old, so I'm really deep in the weeds of, you know, helping kids learn how to co-regulate and things like that. And I've learned so much about naming the emotion and having multiple words for the emotion. And that's not something that I feel like we were parented with growing up because that just wasn't out there as much as it is today. It was like, put on a happy face or, you know, just tough it out or, you know, for, for men, especially like be, be a strong, silent type. And it takes courage to face your emotions head on and then to also express them to other people. You have to feel safe with those people in order to do that. Yeah. And you have to, and if you're worried about someone's reaction and trying to control that, it's going to limit your power and choice and freedom. But if you start to build that internal measure of not only what do you want to do, but what meets your values and use that as your marker of success, regardless of their, you care about the reaction, but you don't let that guide you. Then you can say, Hey, I'm integrity of my values and I have skill to handle whatever the reaction is. Right. So to me, that's a very empowered place to be. And I, we try to teach or support that and, and that skill or that, that grounded place from which to come. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, to distill this connection piece a little bit, like number one, uh, learning more words for some of the emotions that you may have and being okay with those emotions and not judging those emotions, having p- safe people around you so that you can say what those emotions are and trying to identify the need under those emotions. And let's see, what am I missing? Well, yes. So those are the big ones to be able to identify the emotions and feelings and connect them to your needs. So we don't want to tell, say that other people are making us feel a certain way, right? You can't, I can't make you feel any way. You can't make me feel any way. 
my needs are and my perceptions, right? So that's so to me. And then there's the other pieces that we talk about are observations instead of evaluations, and then how to make requests instead of demands. So that sort of flanks the feelings and needs. So there's something I observed, it stimulated a feeling, which I connect to a need, and then I can make a request of somebody else to help contribute to that need or celebrate how they did contribute to that need. And I think there's a, there's one more thing, one more piece for me, which is, yes, having safe people that you can naturally feel vulnerable or express a vulnerability and authenticity with is fantastic. And then there's the additional step of having the courage to make a mess around vulnerability with the new people and seeing how that lands and what that unfolds for you. And for me, it's, you know, we fear we need, we're needing acceptance or belonging. And so our desire is to hide our authentic selves in that need for authenticity and belonging. And we show up in this artificial harmony, suppressing and repressing feelings and needs that go unmet building resentments or, you know, all kinds of stuff that live inside of us, but are not expressed. And then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. We are in artificial harmony and we are not seen for ourselves. And that does not feel like a safe space. So I think it's, it's having the courage to show up in vulnerable authenticity and, and trust, like Matt said, that you can clean up messes. Because if you don't, if you, if there's not feelings and needs coming out, then I really worry about suppression. And so if someone says to me, oh, I have the, you know, my kid never complains and my kid never, you know, is upset. That actually concerns me, right? You know, so similarly, hey, you know, I've been going all these years and my husband doesn't complain about anything. He just, you know, does what, there's a lot of suppression there. And then. You know, I just had heard this happen, unfortunately, with a couple after many, many years of marriage, no, no signs of problems. And she says, Hey, you know, I really want to have some separate bank accounts. And his response was, I want to get a divorce. And it's like, Whoa, what happened there? And you know exactly what happened. There was years of needs being suppressed. And now the strategy of divorce is saying, Hey, I'm no longer willing to submit, right? I'm going to get my needs met. And the only strategy I can see is leaving you, right? That is the, that's the danger. So even if you get what you want in the moment, you're going to pay for it later. If there's suppression, you know, that submission rebellion dynamic that happens a lot with parents and children. We've touched on one of these pillars and a lot of these pillars are interconnected. It's like a wheel, but the, it looks like the thesis of creating these pillars was to think about chronic disease and how do we prevent and reverse chronic disease. And it it sounds like for both of you, like kind of diet was the start, like a whole foods plant-based diet was the start of that. And then it turned into some of these other things. So first of all, can you tell me what some of these other pillars are? And then can you kind of give a bird's eye view of how this contributes to um, preventing and reversal of chronic diseases? Yeah. So we start with the self and connecting, regulating the self, the nervous system, and then connecting to what's alive in you, your feelings and needs. And then we want to resource you. So we talk about the internal world, which is the the next four pillars, sleep, nutrition, activity, and play. And then when you resource yourself and you're clear what you're feeling and needing, you now have the fuel to connect to the external world and really bring in joy and satisfaction in your life. And connecting to the external world is your other four pillars, your family, friends, your work, 
meaning and purpose at work, your spirituality and something bigger than yourself and interdependence with the rest of the world. And then what, connecting to what's alive or connecting to all of the life on the planet, the natural world is the last pillar, the ninth pillar. So those are the nine pillars. And then your, your question was, how do they, how do they all connect to chronic disease? Was that the question? So all of them, it's interesting. We, we talk about this in wellness to wonderful around being in a pro-inflammatory state. When you and we we actually have one of the appendices talks about all nine pillars and how that contributes when they're out of balance to that pro-inflammatory state. But whenever you are in a state of threat, when your body's in that the sympathetics are going, right? The, the autonomic nervous system is is in that fight or flight mode. You release all sorts of everything from pro-inflammatory cytokines to you know uh, adrenaline and cortisol to shifts in in blood flow that all support chronic disease, right? So we have, and then when you are disconnected from yourself, when you repress, that puts your body into a fight or flight mode. And we've shown, there's studies that show that ex, things, expressive writing, just putting your secrets and your stress out on paper is enough to affect chronic disease markers, right? So that's sleep. We know that, you know, nutrition, a lot of people know now, for example, really improves health when you have uh, you know, whole foods, plant-based nutrition. So now these other pillars, not only is sleep effective for your health alone, right? It affects cancer, cancer recurrence, heart disease, but it also affects your ability to follow a healthier diet because people who sleep six hours versus eight hours, people who sleep, sleep six hours, given the same food to choose from, will have hundreds of calories and more calorie-dense food than the people who slept a full night's sleep. So not only do they themselves affect disease, they also affect your ability to do the other pillars that affect disease. Anything to add on? Yeah, as a as a health coach, so I did a health coaching program through Vanderbilt University and they do it under their integrative medicine program. And they have something called the Wheel of Health, which actually integrates a lot of the things that you just said. And I think something that's really important is to figure out which one of these pillars is the keystone, is the foundation because it's going to be different for everybody. For me, sleep is the foundation for everything. If, if I am not rested, my the quality of my play, the quality of my movement, the quality of my thoughts and my ability to regulate is just not going to be there. So if somebody's looking at all these pillars, they're like, gosh, these are a lot of different things. Like, where do I even start? It's like identifying or trying to identify which one of these is going to be the keystone to all these other things so that they can snowball with each other. Right. And they're all, again, they're all connected. Like, you know, for example, we talk about and Wellness to Wonderful, we talk about connection and how connection, even with your doctor, affects disease outcomes. Right. So to me, there, you know, connection also affects your ability to sleep. Right. You know, connection to yourself and your regulation affects your ability. You know, if you're dysregulated in fight or flight all day, it's gonna be very hard to relax and all of a sudden fall asleep. But at the same time, not protecting an eight-hour window because you're working so much, let's say, and you want to do extra work before you go to bed is also going to affect your sleep, right? So it's, it's, we talk about nine pillars, like nine beautiful children, and you're never going to have them all taken care of. You're going to be worried about them for the rest of your life. You're going to tend to them for the rest of your life. And how do you know which child to take care of? There's one falling down the steps and one needs help with their homework. You're probably going to tend to the one falling down the steps, and then you'll get to the one that needs homework. And you're always going to be checking in and for the rest of your life, you're going to care for them. And it's through that care that the joy comes, 
And I think that's when, you know, when our pillars feel very out of balance and you get that sense of which one at this moment feels the most out of balance and would benefit from my attention at this moment. There's the reverse approach, which is where do I find most joy? Which of these pillars do I most resonate with? And the beauty about that is, as we see, they're interconnected. So wherever you focus, it will get to the other ones. Um, And if you find fun and you enjoy the process, you're much more willing to engage in that and much more likely to get not only the benefit of that individual pillar, but all of the other ones that it impacts. Yeah, there's definitely a motivation and energy that comes from choosing things that are exciting and that where you feel like you can do it versus what am I going to avoid and how am I going to cut this out? Right. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Absolutely. We talk about that a lot with, I mean, with all of the pillars, but the one that comes to mind is movement and activity. A lot of people associate activity with formal exercise. So I have to get to the gym. I have to run for an hour. I have to, I have to, I have to. And that energy of I should, I have to is that whole mobilization state that puts us in that fight or flight, right? If we don't, there will be a consequence. And so it's coming from this fear-based approach, which is that pro-inflammatory state versus Exercise is one strategy to fulfill activity. Movement is another. How can I move today? How would I like to move today? Would I like to go dancing with a friend or would I have a dance party with my family? Would I like to go play basketball at the park? Join a rock climbing gym. Right. Join a rock climbing gym. Go for a hike. You know, take my dog for a walk or a run. All of these different ways that we can incorporate movement that suddenly becomes fun and is something that we actually want to do. Yeah, I think having creativity around movement and finding the play in the movement instead of what everybody else is doing or, you know, what I've seen in the magazine, like how can you find ways that that creates joy and opportunity and curiosity in the movement? Yeah, that's one of the other benefits for me around investing in nonviolent communication is the needs-based consciousness that it builds. Oftentimes, we mistake our strategies for our needs. So I need to go to the gym. Well, the need is probably for movement. The gym is a strategy to meet that need. Once we connect to the need, so many other strategies all of a sudden become available and that's in nutrition. You know, I don't like broccoli. Okay, don't eat broccoli. There's so many other vegetables you can tap into that you might enjoy. But when we connect to that need for health versus I need to have this one thing, the abundance of strategies become available and that they guarantee that we will find one that works for us and that we can enjoy. I'm going to jump around a little bit, but whenever I look at these pillars, I see the work pillar. And I know that people struggle a lot with this because a lot of times people think that their purpose has to be their work. And in a lot of cases, that that isn't the case. So, you know, how do people work on this work? <laughs> how do people work on the work pillar? <laughs> well, I think the media, it's taking, again, this is where the all of them are connected, right? So you have to regulate, self-connect and start to discern what is it that I like? How am I feeling right now? What am I needing? What needs are not met? And that can, you know, why am I? Because it's not, we don't need to work. We need to, we want to contribute to society. 
or we want to have, you know, our basic needs, you know, for sustenance met, right? Like, you know, we need a roof over our head, food to eat, clothes to wear. Those are the needs, right? So how am I going to meet those needs, right? And to me, that gets us closer. And then, hey, what needs are not met by your current work? So not only is it what am I needing, but I'm doing something right now that I'm feeling unpleasant feelings, right? I get up and I'm like, oh, I got to go to work today. What is that feeling? I'm feeling heaviness. I'm feeling tension. I'm feeling fear, right? Those could be different. Heaviness could be an overwhelm could be they're just asking me to do all these things. I don't know how to have boundaries and say what I can do. Fear could be, hey, there's this person being inappropriate with me in the office and not respecting me. Right. And I want to have respect and, you know, oh, okay. So that's a different issue. Oh, I'm not really inspired. I'm not feeling, I want to feel more inspired. Okay. So now you're needing inspiration. Really, that's going to be different. Is it the work that you're not inspired? Is it the project you're not inspired? Is it the whole company? I work, oh, I work for a tobacco company. I'm feeling really ashamed and, you know, guilty about that. Okay. So you want to do marketing, but maybe you like that, but you don't really like the company you're working. So it's really taking time and not focusing on what to do. It's that self-connection first and really taking time there. And then eventually what to do will naturally bubble up. And I think the self-connection, just to make the point of when we have our needs met, we feel pleasant emotions or you know pleasant sensations. When our needs go unmet, that's when we start feeling the unpleasant sensations and what they are really are a message to take inventory, to tap into what's happening here that I'm feeling these unpleasant emotions. And I think for to just add to what you shared is work, what is our need with our work? For some people it is meaning and purpose, but work is a strategy to meet the need for meaning and purpose. We can meet needs for meeting meaning and purpose in spirituality, we can connect to volunteer work. You know, there's a lot of different ways to meet that meaning and purpose. Is it a need for financial security? And when we can tap into these needs, there's another shift that happens. And it's a shift from I have to do this to I'm choosing to do this. I'm choosing this line of work that maybe isn't meeting my need for meaning and purpose at the moment, but it is really meeting my need for financial security. And that matters to me at this moment. So I'm going to continue choosing this path. And there's an empowerment and a sense of safety versus a danger or a mobilization when we connect to that. Yeah, that's, I think that's really important to, we always help people translate I have to's to I, I'm choosing to, because you have choice in everything you do in life. Even when people think they don't, they have choice. They might not like their choices. They might be scared to make different choices. They might be unclear other opportunities, but they always have choice. And once you come from that place, life automatically starts to shift. Yeah, that autonomy piece is so huge in intrinsic motivation too, like feeling like you have a sense of agency. Yes, it is huge. So I wanted to ask you actually about the work piece. So something that I hear a lot is like, well, I'm so busy at work. I'm working, you know, eight to 10 hours a day. Because of that, I don't have time to exercise, to, to eat healthily, to sleep. I don't have time to attend to all these other pillars because of work. So what advice do you have for people who feel overwhelmed with their time management? So I would first do what we just talked about, which is translate that to I choose. I choose to work in a job and I'm in a job where I'm choosing to work 10 hours a day, right? And someone might say, well, my boss makes me. 
I would say, I don't think they make you, right? Because they're not standing there and holding your hands at the computer and typing for you, right? Like the the boss is telling you, here's maybe a, you know, repercussion or a consequence if you don't do what they're saying. But if you choose a job, you say, hey, you can either choose to talk to your boss and say, you know what? I'm really having a hard time keeping the 10 hours. And I want to make sure I care about your needs too. See how it's about connection, right? So I'm not about just getting my needs met. I'm focused on, I know that you really want to perform or whatever the business is, right? And I care about that. And I'm caring about my needs for self-care. And I'm wondering if there is a way that I can do some self-care, like let's assume it is to exercise and meet needs for the business. Can you first just tell me back what you're hearing so that we can make sure there's this quality connection? Because if the boss says, if if I don't let you work, you know, exercise, or I don't let you work less, you're going to quit. And you can say, okay, so now he's hearing maybe a threat or criticism. And I say, okay, well, I'd like you to hear me differently. I'd really like you to hear that I care about this business and I care about making sure we come up with strategies that meet the business needs and your needs as well as my needs. But currently I have a need for self-care that's not being met. And I'd love to find out a way if it's even possible to do that. Do you have ideas? Are you feeling open to strategize even? And then you'd ask me again, hey, what did you hear me say? Would you be willing to tell me that back? I'm hearing that you want to strategize ways to meet your needs. And I say, yes, thank you. And I want to make sure those strategies meet your needs too. And I'd say, how do you feel about that when you hear that? And they might say, well, I'm a little bit confused right now. What do you mean, how do I feel? And you say, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm just curious how you're feeling. Are you feeling like tense or like pressure? Or are you feeling open and expansive about this? Because I'm really trying to have a connection with you and to make sure that when I re- see, I reiterate, right? I really want to make sure you're having needs met as well as my needs are met. How does that feel to you? Oh, I guess that feels pretty good. Oh, wait. So do you see how yeah. that's the process? See how we're, but that's what we mean by connection. I think that's the beauty about the connection is, you know, Matt talked about that submit or rebel binary kind of thinking that we have. Either I submit to this job and do what my boss says, or I rebel and I quit. And what this tool and this opportunity to connect give you are a whole flavor of colors in between there, you know, and opportunities between there. I think in addition to opportunities for connection are that that creativity that you mentioned. What can I also do in the space that I'm in right now that might help with achieving some of these goals? Like, is there a way for me to walk up the stairs to get to my workspace or park a little farther? Or, you know, movement doesn't have to be hours at a time. It could be, you know, even when we take sometimes the small steps to be, to get that ball rolling, they're impactful. And even not only on their own, but in, in sparking that motivation to think bigger, to get more creative, to invest more in that self-care and that self-connection. Right. It's, I mean, even just standing, I'll do stretches while I'm on calls. If it's not a video call, I'll do, um, balance exercises, right? Where you can stand on one foot, stand on the other and move around, right? So there's even ways to work that in while you're working if you want, if you want to get creative. Right. So I think I think it's not about being attached to a specific strategy. It's more and then maybe your boss will say, hey, you know, we could make about a 30 minute break where people can go outside and and maybe do a quick, you know, power walk or something like that. That would be okay with me. 
But you see how we're now starting to care for each other's needs. And I would check in. I'd say, hey, are you feeling like you have to and you're, you know, or are you feeling like, hey, that's really contributing to me and you're happy about that, right? So I'm always checking in about the connection and how the other person is doing as well as my, how I'm doing. Yeah, a couple of things there, like the communication piece is such a huge part of connection, having that active listening and that reflecting back so that you feel heard and understood. And then the power of small things. And I think that that is such a great way to describe how you can work on all of these pillars simultaneously is that a lot of times people think, well, this has to be perfect or it has to be this huge thing. And then they get stuck thinking all or none. Like, well, I'm either doing this one hour workout at the gym or I'm doing nothing at all. And what you're saying is it can be small things like go up the stairs, you know, eat a handful of greens, like a little thing over and over and over makes a big difference. But a lot of times we think it has to be perfect. And every single one of these categories needs to look a certain way. Whenever really it's just doing little things that all add up to big things. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. So I noticed you have the spirituality pillar in here, and I know that that's also a big part of of Dan Buettner's Blue Zone. So can you talk more about what spirituality means? And I think it that's a really individualistic one that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But in overall, for me, it's this sense of interdependence. It's knowing that I do not stand alone, but I am connected to things that are greater than than myself. And there's a sense of it really meets needs for peace and safety to connect to that. And that could look and that could look like a lot of things. It could be connecting with the natural world and going for a walk outside and just being reminded about the beauty in this world. It could be doing a meditation. It could be for some people, it could be religion. So it can come in so many different forms. But that is really it, that connection. So many of us right now are living in this sense of isolation. I am alone or I feel alone or I feel limited by my nuclear family or or of family of origin or family and friends. And to just realize that there is more than that out there. Yeah. And the that idea, right, like that we're we're all waves in the same ocean. Right. And, and the balance of we ought to take care of the self and the needs of the self, but also each other. And that to some extent, the, the definition of self includes other people. Right. I think we do it a lot. We do that a lot in our family. Right. In people's families, the self is me, my partner and my kids. Right. We care about all of the needs pretty much the same. And in fact, the parents will sometimes care about the kids' needs more than their own needs. So taking care of themselves is actually taking care of their kids, right? So there's this idea that we do it a little bit, but can we do that on a, a, a bigger scale? And I think the more we can care about other people and realize that just as caring for my kids' needs meets my needs, caring for people around us in our community and the world around us meets our needs. So I think that's that's one piece that's really important. And the other piece about spirituality that really is important to me is just this sense of organismic wisdom, right? The sense that there's a wisdom inside of us beyond our intellect that we can gain a lot from recognizing. So I think that that's another piece that's really important for us to, and and to me, that's similar, like um, you don't have to take care of like um, a baby, you know, that's that's developing over nine months, right? It's sort of just, we just get out of the way and it knows what to do. And to me, that's really important with 
with life in general, that there's some level of wisdom that we get like gut feelings and, and we'll think about things. I don't know what to do because I'm focused on my intellect. And then in the morning we wake up and we just have this, ah, I got it. And I don't think we give enough credit to that part of us that I'm calling organismic wisdom. And we're, we're taught it's all intellect. And I think if we can get a balance between both of those, because I think you want to have intellect as well, obviously, I think that's starting to round out that spirituality pillar. Yeah, that that cognitive piece can be really helpful, but it can also get in your way so much and it can take away from your intuition. You know that you want to do a certain thing or you should or not. I don't want to use the word should. You think you, you, you know, there's are things that you feel that you want to do in your life. But then your brain tells you all the reasons why you can't do it. And like thinking about, you know, why I can't do this because of this reason. And it can be really hard to connect to that that voice inside of you, that deeper intuition piece. Right. And when you ignore that voice, there's a lot of pain and life is very far from wonderful. And the more you can start paying attention to that voice and honoring that voice, you don't even have to strategize and do anything. But just to listen to it, uh, life starts to very quickly get wonderful. So as an exercise for the listener here, if you guys are game, I think we should each talk about which pillar we are maybe on that on that balancing with the pillars, which one we struggle with the most. And maybe the listener will feel like they are empowered to make some of these changes. So who wants to start? I can go first. Mine is regulation. I have like this type A go-getter, try and fit in so much in my day. Mm-hmm. And it's just this intensity. And if I can sort of just regulate i have to do a lot of work and attention to that and sort of you know get in the river a little bit go with the flow a little bit more try not to control outcomes as much that's an ongoing pillar that i have to tend to so how do you tend to it that's around self what'd you say how do you tend to it oh i do meditation i do different breathing exercises i'll have a little alarm i have we talked about this in wellness to wonderful i'll do a little restore technique where I just this this checking in and always um, spending time giving my body messages of safety so that I can and then also trying to make I don't do this always as well trying to choose to schedule my calendar in a way that I'm not back to back to back so that I have time to take breaks and breathe and go outside and do those things that support a regulated nervous system. Yeah, the, it's so hard being intentional with that time in your calendar and and respecting the boundary of not putting yes. things back to back. <laughs> yes, yes. Tell me about it. <laughs> How about you? I think for me, whenever I hear one, I'm like, I'm never going to come up with just one. So the two <laughs> that are resonating for me are the natural world and play. And I think I bringing them together. I notice when I am able to make time and and I use my daughters to model for me because they are just, they live in play and the joy that it brings to them to, to the joy and the presence, that sense of being present in this moment, absorbing what is here. And there's so much benefit to me for that. And so finding ways that I can actually experience the natural world, which I notice when I'm outdoors, there is a sense of calm and serenity and peace that I experience, um, especially in nature, you know, not in the midst of a big city, but in nature that is just so healing for me. 
Um, so how, how to play in nature is my, my thing right now. <laughs> I, as a, like my career is being outside in nature and yeah, I, I can connect with that a lot. I'd say for me, it's a combination of self and family and friends. Um, like Dr. Letterman said, I'm, I'm a pusher. I'm a type A. I want to get as much done as possible. I always want to learn. I always want to be doing. And that comes at the expense of relationships and telling myself that I need to, it's okay for me to do less, to be less productive on one thing so that I can spend more time in these relationships and Dr. Waldinger's or Waldinger's, I don't know how to say his last name, research about uh, the, the ongoing study that he's been doing with, with, I think it's Harvard, about how important relationships are. It's so easy to let those go whenever you get super busy and you get goal-oriented and you want to just get all this stuff done. So for me, making time and dealing with the discomfort that comes up of I should be productive right now and saying that these relationships are as important as me being productive. And that's that's always a battle for myself. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That awareness is is the first step, right? That's really helpful. And also to acknowledge that some days I'm regulating and doing a fantastic you know, job on that. And another pillar is actually needing attention. Mm-hmm. And sometimes all pillars are balanced and flowing, and that's fantastic. And then something happens and it changes. So it's this dynamic, lifelong tending and checking in and then balancing versus like it's always this pillar or this is the most important pillar. It really is self-directed and dynamic. Yeah. I love, I'm just going to add to that. I, I love the point that you made because it's when we also do the, when we focus, laser focus on one pillar and like, I'm only going to be, I'm going to be really productive or I'm going to be really efficient or I'm going to make a pristine diet. And there's, you know, this intensity around <laughs> that it actually can impact the other ones negatively. So to note oh, you know, by by doing this, there's a cost here. And if I just scale this back, I can do this effectively and have this experience as well. And I I love that awareness. Another thing I love asking is, how do I want to feel versus what am I trying to achieve? Because sometimes those are two different things. Yes. And that, again, goes back to what you got, what you two were talking about with needs. Like, how do I want to feel is kind of like, well, what are what need do I need to have met right now? And sometimes pushing, doing, you know, I'm going to go to bed at 8 p.m. so that I can get enough sleep or I'm never going to eat oil again so that I can, you know, like, what is what? How do you want to feel and how can you identify the need behind that? Yes. Right. I and love that. Right. And, and different needs can stimulate the feelings. So I love also checking in and then and then when someone says like how do i want to feel it's hard to make a feeling come up but we can usually instead i would say what action should i take that may lead to me feeling that right because you can take an action that may or may not lead to a feeling so knowing what you'd like to feel maybe having some memory of well in the past if i did this action or i met this need i felt that way and that was really wonderful I'd love to feel that way again. Maybe I'll try that same action or check in on that same need. So I think that it gets more clear as you have this framework. So I'm going to ask a question. I don't know if it's a hard question or not, but it's about nutrition. So, you know, I really am an advocate for eating a whole foods plant-based diet. And I tell people like, you don't have to be perfect, just, you know, trend in that direction and things will, will go well for you and you'll feel better. But, you know, which one of the like I like I feel like the nutrition is a really important pillar, but that might not be the case. Like eating a whole foods plant based diet or or cutting out processed foods, 
versus focusing on these other things? Like, is there a weight to the nutrition over some of these other ones for chronic disease? Only if you can do it, (laughs) right? And, but that's where the other pillars come into play. If your connection with your family is having you so mobilized that you cannot commit to whole food plant-based diet or a health promoting diet, if you are lacking in sleep to the extent where you feel so depleted that you have no energy to contribute to a healthy diet, then putting all that energy into a healthy diet is not going to be successful for you. So, so it really is like, yes, if you can connect and successfully and joyfully put attention to nutrition, fantastic. That will absolutely impact so strongly, um, positively impact, you know, prevention and reversal of disease. But if all these other factors are preventing you from doing that, then putting all your attention there and failing is even more devastating. Mm. Sorry, I cut you off. No, that's okay. The, the, and, and to me, it's like, I mean, it's, it's similar to what Alona was saying, you know, take, if you focus on the connection, for example, right. And you feel inspired. If you don't, if, if you're hating your life and you're miserable and you're unhappy, right. Even if you get the diet and you stop, let's say you, you reverse your diabetes, but is that, where has that gotten you at that point? Right. You're still, miserable and unhappy now without diabetes right and being miserable and unhappy and disconnected actually is again a pro-inflammatory state that will cause other problems so i think that there there's not that one diet one pillar is more important to me it's it would almost go back to the children right if i have nine children is one child more important than the other Mm -hmm. right but when all of them are playing nicely together boy is life pretty wonderful but sometimes there's a reason why one of them is not is not playing nice and one of them that needs my attention more. So that's where I, and I would always ask instead of how do I eat, get my diet, it's what's preventing me from eating the food I know I'm, I want to eat. And that will give us more insight so we can start saying, okay, so you want to eat this way, but you're not. What's preventing you from doing that? What are the, when are you able to stick with it and when are you not? Because most people yo-yo. So I'm like, oh, well, there's a reason. Sometimes you're able to and then sometimes you're not. What's happening when you're not able to? You're trying, you're always trying to meet needs. So when you choose this other food in that moment, what's going on in your world? What needs are you trying to meet? So there's a little bit of investigative work, but we can usually get there. Yeah. And asking that what question makes people focus on action and behavior. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thanks for offering that balanced view of of nutrition because I think that it can be really easy to get super down the rabbit hole and saying this is the number one most important thing but while forgetting that, well, you know, you could be eating this quote perfect diet, but some of these other things might be lacking and you still might not feel have that vitality and that joy in your life that you're looking for. Right. If people are focused on losing weight, right, they're not connected to themselves. They're not, if they're focused on, I want to feel good and I want to be able to move and I want to just that sense of like health and energy, that's going to be different. So if your focus is on losing weight, then you can, you know, power through and, you know, eat whatever food and the weight starts to come off or potentially take weight loss pills or other things that are even potentially more harmful. But when you're not connected to yourself, that's not going to be sustainable. And that's what we find is if you care to be on a a healthy diet for the rest of your life, it's got to come from this intrinsic motivation. 
And if you ignore these nine pillars, you won't be able to sustain it. Something that you both have mentioned a lot is the word safety. And I also noticed that there's some polyvagal theory in your book. Can you talk about safety a little bit? Yeah, so safety versus threat. There's sort of two physiological states that we shift from. Right? We're always scanning the environment, which uh, Stephen Porter talks about neuroception, where we're not even thinking about it. It's below our uh, it's, uh, perception where we're actually just scanning. So if, if I'm I'm scanning like people's facial expressions, I'm scanning sounds, even th- you know thought, right? All of that's affecting me, and I'm making a net sort of calculation of how safe am I in this moment. And then based on that, I determine, hey, do I have to fire up the sympathetics and prepare to fight and get my my inflammatory my immune system ready and the inflammatory cytokines up and going so that we can fix tissue damage and other damage that happens from this fight. Or can I settle everything down? Say, hey, we're put sort of we're safe now. Everything's okay. We can focus on growth and healing and reproduction. And there's this constant back and forth sort of tone. And ideally, there's a threat that comes. We quickly release this safety break to let the mobilization go and we fight or flee. And then we put the safety break back on and we say everything's fine and we can slow down and settle down. And then we can go back to our guts working and we're eating and we're reproducing and we're healing. So that to me is for people to understand that that's happening. And when that's happening, that contributes to either, for example, digestion flowing the way it should, or it's going to contribute to when you're in fight or flight, you remove the safety break. You don't get those messages to your gut to say, hey, we're safe and you can function and and go. We got to move all the blood to the extremities right? So that's going to cause the gut to feel terrible at that point. So if you're living in that fight or flight, high alert state, you're not getting those messages. For example, I'm picking on the gut, but you're not getting those messages to the gut that say, hey, everything's cool. You can now do your thing. And when that happens, people get symptoms, right? So it's, it, whether it's your gut or it's pro-inflammatory cytokines that are cause, you know supporting insulin resistance and you have high blood sugars or some other mechanism Right. It even affects your microbiome, affects all parts of your body. So we want to try and stay out of fight or flight most of our time, go into it quickly and then come out of it quickly. Most people struggle to do that. And that contributes to chronic disease. Yeah. And one of the big reasons that most people struggle to do that is we're hardwired to respond to danger. And the reason for that is because we don't want to take the time if we're actually seeing the tiger to analyze, oh, is this one hungry? Is this, am I, should I run? Should I stay? Should I, you know, you want to just run automatically so that that instinct and reflex take over versus the thought process. And once it was, I see the tiger. I actually see the tiger and it's coming toward me. Now it's, I think of the tiger or I think there might at some point be a tiger. So any of that psychological stress is just as impactful as a physical stress. But your brain can't tell, your body can't tell the difference between a physical, emotional, spiritual, or mental threat. It all activates the same physiology, whether it's a physical threat mental, right? So to me, that's really important to know that because your body reacts to that threat state in a way that supports all these chronic diseases. And interesting, we talk about this as well, chronic pain, right? And we don't have to get into that now or, you know, but it's really fascinating to see that 
chronic pain and chronic disease is affected by all of this. Yeah, it really sounds like self-connection and in understanding emotions and how you communicate is the through line through all of these pillars so that people can make these changes in their life and that it doesn't have to be complex. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's it's looking at what is what is speaking to me right now? What gives me the most energy right now? And then focusing there. Yes. Exactly. So tell us about um, WeHeal.Health before we take off here. Yeah, so WeHeal.Health is our virtual platform and we offer classes and courses on nutrition and lifestyle and trauma recovery and uh, NVC. Yes, so there's different, you can work individually, but the goal ideally is through connection and community and in groups. And not only are the not only are the the classes, but then there's uh, support groups that support people. We're putting together also classes with colleagues that have expertise, sort of like specialists in all of the different modalities that we talk about, and really just trying to bring people together and to start applying this in their lives. Yeah, it's such a great tool. From you know, a lot of people will listen to a podcast or read a book, but then how do you actually take action in your life? And this sounds like such a great resource for that. Yes. We have a really um, fun, for example, cooking class. And we, the uh, Lisa Rice, who's a, a chef and uh, nutrition, has nutrition expertise, sends out the recipes before the class so people actually can cook during the class. So not only do they learn, but then they have food that they can eat right after the class. And that's, for example, every week. So it's a fun way of not only learning, but also producing food that will help sustain you throughout the week. And that tastes so I'm good. I'm saying there's real fun ways. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's like bringing the play in. The like, cooking yes. can be play, and enjoying food is play. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> yes. exactly. Well, thanks so much for all this amazing information. For you know, not just this book, but all the other books that you've done. And I'm so excited for people to connect with your work. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that podcast episode. And if you have any questions about anything you heard, plant based, anything lifestyle medicine related. This is what I do. I'm a national board certified health and wellness coach, and I'm also a mental performance coach. So I'm here to guide you if you want my help. And I have lived this. I've helped many other people transform in their lives. So reach out to me. Or if that isn't your jam, make sure you go to We Heal because they have tons of great resources there and they offer their own coaching as well. If you're enjoying the show, please don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And we appreciate reviews. We noticed that some of you have been leaving those reviews. I'm always a little bit hesitant to read them out loud on the show because I don't know if people actually want to hear that. But I am always so happy whenever you leave reviews and whenever I see you out there. A lot of you out at the High Cascades 100, even in the race, told me that you listened to this podcast. And that meant the absolute world to me. I've been doing this for six years, and that's a very long time to be behind a microphone by yourself and with guests. But I rarely hear from people that are listening to the show. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for all of the comments and compliments and for sharing the show with your friends because that truly puts wind in my sails. Also, big shout out to my team at Palm Tree Pod and my editor, Roma. You are helping me so much make this podcast even better. And I'm so excited to see what the future will hold for us. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. I'll see you right back here next week.